welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. Well, good morning. If you got your if you got your Bible. Not your babbles. If you've got your Bibles, please turn to Acts chapter 16, same place we were last week. We're going to pick up there again. Got a picture coming up here. This is the Southland Ice Company in Texas in the 1920s. Now, if you're not familiar with how things used to go, so I'm told, I'm not that old, so I'm told, used to, if you wanted to keep your things refrigerated, your food and things of that nature, what you would do is go to a company who had the ability to create ice. You would buy about a one-by-one block of ice, put that in your ice box, and then that is what kept your groceries cool. Well, in the 1920s, at one of these locations, one of these Southland Ice Company locations, the manager saw a business opportunity. He knew that the ice company was open more than any other business in town. It was open 16 hours a day, seven days a week. And he thought, if people are coming to buy ice on all those days, if I begin to keep extra necessities, bread, milk, eggs, things of that nature, then there is an opportunity for profit as people will come here when other stores are closed. Now, this became so popular that the Southland Ice Company rebranded itself as 7-Eleven, which was the hours it was open from, from 7 in the morning to 11 in the evening as a convenience store. Now, fast forward this history lesson to the 1960s, and uh, the Texas Longhorns in Austin, Texas, have just won a major game. And the 7-Eleven close to campus cannot close at its regularly scheduled time of 11 o'clock because all of these crazed fans come in and out all night. And they realize that as this this, uh, convenience store never has the opportunity to close that there is an opportunity for stores to be open throughout the night and yet still make a profit. Continue to today, 90% of convenience stores now hold what we call the 24-7 model. It has become so popular in America that we use 24-7 not just to talk about when a store is open. We use it as a way of saying completeness or something that is all-encompassing. So with all that said, I said all that to say this, this series that we're in right now is called 24-7 in 2024. What we want to do is we want to reaffirm our focus to those things as believers of Christ that we should do 24-7, that should consume us, that should be an all-encompassing part of our life. And last week we began talking about this year's focus, which is reaching our households with the gospel. And today I want to begin focusing and reaffirming our commitment to the Great Commission. RB, if you want to pull that up for him. We're going to say our Great Commission to start out the sermon today instead of ended. Everybody with me? Okay, get get the icicles off your tongue. Okay, I'm going to need you to really pipe up here because there's not as many of us. I need you to go for it. So here we go. It is my calling to go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all the things my Savior has commanded me, and He is with me always. Listen, as a church, when we say the church, that is us collectively here within this building, that is us when we disperse from here, you are still the church. This is the mission that God has has given us. After Jesus rose again from the dead, he walked around and he gave one instruction as he's leaving. One final thing you need to know before I ascend into heaven and you wait on my return. Get to work. This is why we exist. This is what we're here for. 
Now, we, we break this great commission up into two things, two parts that we believe that Jesus Christ is calling us to. The first one is making disciples, and that, that's evangelism. There is no way to make a disciple of Christ except for to share the gospel with unbelievers and tell them of what Christ has done for them and try to bring them to a saving faith in Him. The second part of it is teaching disciples, which we call discipleship. This is where we bring new people to Christ, and then we begin the process of training them. Not just are you saved and going to heaven. What does it now mean to be a Christ follower? What can you learn from the Word of God? How should you live? Write these things on your heart. So over the next two weeks, we're going to focus on these two different things, evangelism today and discipleship next week. Your first take-home truth this morning is our collective and individual 24-7 mission is to evangelize unbelievers and disciple believers. This is why we are here. So as we begin to talk about evangelism, I want to go back to Acts chapter 16, which we talked about last week when we talked about the concept of a household and bringing people to Christ with us. And I want to go back through that story a little bit more in depth, and I want to ask some questions about evangelism. I want, I want to ask what it means to evangelize. So we're going to answer four questions today through the scripture in Acts chapter 16. We're going to answer the question of how does God work? We're going to answer the question of what does evangelism look like? What does opposition look like? And when does evangelism work? Those are the four questions we're looking for answers to today. We'll find the answer to the first one, how does God work, in 16. Read with me verses 6 through 10. Now they, uh, now when they, this is Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy are traveling. Now when they had gone from, I can't say that one, and the region of Galatia and were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to him. Keep your Bibles open. So let me give you just a little bit of a background of what we're talking about. The book of Acts is a historical record of the Acts of the Apostles. And it records stories from the original 12 apostles, Paul, other people who become disciples after them. So Paul is traveling on these missionary journeys, and he is spreading the gospel everywhere he goes, along with Silas, Timothy, and Luke. I'm going to call them today. I'm going to call them Paul and crew. Now, at this point in the story, this is where we see the Holy Spirit take control. Now, I know I like to uh, go over this a lot, but I want to make sure that we as a church understand the Holy Spirit properly. When you become a follower of Christ, God gives the Holy Spirit to you. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. That's why the Bible says that, that we are His temples. Our body is a temple. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. And from that point forward, God is a constant companion with us where He leads us, convicts us, and guides us. That's what the Holy Spirit does. I fear for people who claim to be Christians who have no semblance of the Holy Spirit calling them or moving them or guiding them or convicting them in some way because this is a, a, a tenet of being a believer. Now what this Holy Spirit will do will speak to us in a way that I just honestly can't explain. I, I, a few weeks ago, uh, God woke me up about four o'clock in the morning. I'm not a morning person. I hate mornings. And I didn't know what to do, but I could just tell God just was wanting me to pray. And so I began to pray through things and eventually 
Eventually, through this conversation with God, he led me to just screenshot the Roman road and send it to a friend of mine who I've been trying to lead to Christ. So first thing, he wakes up six o'clock in the morning. Here's this long text from me, along with the Romans road that basically says, you're lost and you need to be saved. And, and I wanted him to understand why this happened. So I explained to him what I just explained to you is that, that I woke up and I could just feel God calling me into something. And, and as I prayed and as I saw him, the Holy Spirit continued to talk to me and reveal to me what he wanted me to do. And I tried to explain this to a non-believer, and I finally ended up telling him as we discussed this, I said, it's kind of like trying to describe the color red. If you've experienced red, you know red, but there's really no way I can describe red to you. And so the Holy Spirit is something that, that we feel that speaks to us. He speaks to us and he guides us. I've heard it described as a small, still voice, which may be the best way to describe it, but it still doesn't encompass it. So the Holy Spirit will begin to lead us in a way that we understand as Christians. Now, here's where this gets hard, is the Holy Spirit will often contradict your desires and your plans. You will have a plan and a desire to do something, and the Holy Spirit will tell you no to do something else. And this is what Paul is doing. Paul has a plan. He's got his map out. He said, we're going to go here, spreading the gospel, and then here, and then here, and then here. And yet what the Bible tells us, the Holy Spirit continually kept telling him, no, you cannot go to that city, or that city, or that city. They were forbidden from going here. So your first take-home truth when we talk about how does God work, point A is that his plans will be different from ours. His plans will be different from ours. And I just want to warn you as a Christian, be ready. When we get saved, what we go to God and say is, I believe you are the King of Kings and I surrender and I submit to you. Be ready for God to take advantage of that and, and tell you that your life, your plans, your desires have to be given up for his good plans. Now, Paul's plans is to go into what we call Asia Minor. That's modern day Turkey, what used to be the Ottoman Empire. And the Holy Spirit forbids him from that. And this is one of the hardest things to understand about the Bible. People argue about this all the time. Why would God take a man who wants to spread the gospel, and he's got it on his heart, I want to go to this city and I want to tell them about Jesus, and yet God goes, no, you're not going there. Why would God do that? Some people have said, well, God had a, a different love for Europe than he did Asia, which I don't believe. Some people would say, well, God did not want them to be saved. I don't believe that either. I believe the answer comes in the dream or the vision that Paul later has, where he sees a man from Macedonia saying, please come help us. So it's not so much that God has forbid them to go in, into Asia Minor because he doesn't love the people of Asia Minor. It's that God already has a plan of where he wants them to go, and you can't go where you want to go and where God wants you to go at the same time. So he forbids them to go where they want to go so they can be a part of his plans. God already has plans. This is point B on your take-home truth is how does God work? His plans are right. They are not just good. His plans are right. And I'm thankful for Paul and his sensitivity to the Holy Spirit because as you continue to follow him throughout his missionary journeys as he travels spreading the gospel, what you see is Paul is not just out there working by himself. That there is a force and a power of God that follows him and teaches through him that does things that Paul would never be able to do. So I would encourage you as we talk about evangelism and sharing the gospel with others, I would encourage you to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit with who, when, and how he wants you to share the gospel with others. 
Because if he is convicting you to share the gospel with somebody else, what he is telling you is that he is prepared to do work in their life and he needs you to be his hands and feet in that particular situation. I would also encourage you to be willing to follow the Holy Spirit into his plans because they are bigger than you. So now let's ask the question of what does evangelism look like? If you still got your Bibles, this is verses 11 through 14. It says, Therefore, selling from Tros, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Nepopolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in the city for some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God. And the Lord opened her heart to heal the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Keep your Bibles open. Once again, we'll come back to that. So the Holy Spirit leads Paul to a city called Philippi. Now, this city did not have a synagogue where Jewish people met. And that's generally what Paul and his crew would do is they would go to the synagogue and say, you're waiting for and you're praying for the Messiah. Let me tell you, he has been here and is better than you expected. Since this city did not have a synagogue, Paul and his crew went to where the Jewish people would generally pray. They're seeking an opportunity to find the people who would listen. So your next take home truth point A is we seek to share the gospel. That's what evangelism looks like, is we have to be willing to seek and desire to share the gospel. That our heart when we go to work, our heart when we go to Walmart, our heart when we go to the family reunion is I am looking for opportunities of people who I can open the conversation with about Jesus and share Jesus with them as he allows me to. It's what Paul and Silas are doing here. And what they find is a group of women, and it says that he spoke to them. Now, if you look at the context clues and you know Paul, you know spoke to them means that they shared the gospel. That Jesus Christ is the sacrifice for our sins, and through him, through his bloodshed on the cross, our sins are paid for, and we can be saved. That is the gospel that Paul preached. And we know that because this gospel fell on a woman named Lydia. The Bible tells us some things about her, that she worshipped God, she was from Thyatira, she was wealthy, but it says that she heard them. Now this is different than seemingly, at least as the Bible tells us, seemingly everybody else Paul and Silas talked to. Nobody else is recorded as hearing them, not hearing them with their ears, but comprehending and understanding what they're saying. And because of this, because of this, she will be saved. And my question is, what makes Lydia different than any of the other women who were there that day that were spoke to by Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy? What makes her different? The Bible tells us that what makes her different is that God opened her heart. Point B on your take-home truth is God impresses the gospel into hearts. We seek to share the gospel. God impresses gospel into the hearts of others. So what we learn about evangelism here is evangelism is not something that I'm so good at. Evangelism is not that I led somebody to God. Evangelism is not that I saved someone. Evangelism has very little to do with us. Evangelism uses our words and impresses them on the hearts of others and brings salvation. John 6.44 says this. It says, No one can come to me, this is Jesus speaking, unless the Father who sent me draws him in. 
So what the Bible is teaching here is that salvation is a process of God. We get to be a part of it. We have the blessing of getting to be a part of his plan. But God is the one who draws them to him. God is the one who opens their heart. God is the one who provides salvation. God is the one who bestows salvation on people who have faith. Our job is just to share the words. Don't put too much pressure on yourself with evangelism. You're not responsible for the results. You're responsible to be obedient. God is responsible for the results. Sow the gospel to everyone and everywhere. It doesn't matter if they hear you, if they don't hear you, if God allows it to plant a seed that may sprout into salvation 20 years from now. Our job is to be obedient, making disciples, and trusting in God to do his work. And I would also say that this proves that it is so important to pray and seek guidance from the Holy Spirit. Because we must be working where God wants us to work. We must be working where God is already working and where he is prepared to work. Now the following verses after this tell a story that is a very surface story. It's a story that you can see on the surface, you can read the details of what happened, but you have to look under the covers to figure out what's really going on. So the next scripture answers the question of what does opposition look like? Read with me verses 16 through 24. Now it happened when we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And, the, and she did this for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out of her that very hour. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them in prison and commanded the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. So Paul and crew stay here in Philippi, and they encounter this demon-possessed girl. We talked about this a little bit last week, is that there are people who claim to be psychics, and they're really just charlatans who want your money. However, there is demonic power in the world that has the ability to do things that we don't want to be connected with. So I just caution us to be careful of anything like fortune-telling, palm-reading, soothsaying, those kind of things. Now, in this particular story, Paul is preaching the gospel of Christ, and this demon within this girl follows him around professing that same gospel, basically giving them a reference. These two men are sent from God to tell you the way of salvation. And Paul turns around to this girl with a demon inside of her and casts the demon out. He becomes frustrated with her. Cast the demon out so that he won't do this anymore. Now, this story creates some questions for me. It creates some questions about what's going on because as far as I can tell from Scripture, Satan and his demons oppose God and what God wants to do in this world. Yet within this story, what we see is this demon following God's warriors around, basically giving them a letter of reference and saying, yeah, these, these guys know what they're talking about. 
Now, that doesn't make any sense if we look at it that way. That would be like the coach of the Arkansas Razorbacks, Sam Pittman, during the LSU game, walking over to the LSU sideline and grabbing a wide receiver and saying, hey, you messed that route up. Let me coach you on how to do it right so you can catch it again. You do not help the enemy. So why is this demon following Paul and Silas and proclaiming this? Secondly, if this demon is helping them, why does Paul have a problem with it? Why would Paul cast out a demon that is respected, this girl is respected as a soothsayer, why would he cast out a demon that's basically going, yeah, these people, you need to listen to them? Well, it turns out that this is one of those stories that loses something in interpretation. Now, the Bible that you hold in your hand is God's Word, but I want to remind you that your Bibles were originally written, written in different languages. This, this part of the Bible was written in Greek. And so, well-being human beings who have done the absolute best they can have taken and very faithfully translated this into English so that you and I can understand the Word of God. But there are times when you translate anything from one language to another that you miss little nuances and cultural keys. This is one of those positions scholars agree that there is one mistranslated word on. So, in the verse where it says that the girl followed them. Verse 17, it says, these, she proclaims, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. The translation that is missed there is if you look in the ancient Greek, it does not say that. It says this. Listen to the difference. See if you can find it. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us a way of salvation. Did you catch the little difference there? That this demon did not proclaim that Jesus is the way to salvation. This demon changed just a little bit and proclaimed that Jesus Christ was a way to salvation. One word here changes the whole message and it undermines Paul's gospel because Paul travels and he teaches there is no way to salvation but through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And yet this demon follows Paul around as he preaches this gospel and he says, these guys know a way. It's a way. There are many others. That one could work for you, but so could Islam, so could following Hindu gods, so could Buddhism. Th those things might also be a path to God. And in doing so, it undermines the entirety of what Jesus preached and what Paul now preaches here, that there is no other way to salvation but through Jesus Christ. And so we see one of the tactics of the opposition of the gospel, point A again on your take-home truths, is that the opposition will come by twisting and softening God's word. Twisting and softening God's word. And I bring that up and I want you to be aware that this is happening now in our society. It is happening in our churches. It may be happening within us. That Satan's ultimate plan is to take the gospel and water it down to where it has no saving power. To where it points away from Jesus Christ. And we see that in our, in our world today as we start to see that we are rewriting morality. We see churches that, that come out and say, well, you know, some sins are okay and God's really okay with it. And they say, that's an outdated list. We, we see the, what I call the good person gospel being kind of prevalent in people that are churchy. Where, where what we kind of believe is like, well, the gospel is be a good person because that's what God wants. And then if you're a good enough person, you'll probably make it. Hitler, Hitler's going to hell. 
But you know, you never stole anything, and you're better than your neighbor, and you quit drinking a long time ago, and you've never murdered anybody. And sure, you got a few things going on, but, but really, you're doing pretty good. What the Bible says is that by God's skills, if you cannot live a holy, perfect life, you need Jesus Christ to save you, which I'll speak for me as me, and I'll be honest with you. I'll go ahead and speak for y'all. That's y'all too. I've known y'all for a long time. You're not perfect. And so what Satan will do is he will begin to twist and soften God's word. Paul gets tired of this. Paul gets tired of his message being undermined and casts this demon out. Now we have a problem. This girl with her ability to tell fortunes is the cash cow of this entire family. They have been selling her out to say, hey, come pay us money and this girl will tell you the future or will give you a fortune or will tell you how to proceed in business. And now that the demon is gone, the girl has no ability to do that that. And so in that moment, the owners are now very, very mad at Paul and Silas. So the second thing that we see, point B on your take-home truths, is that attacking the messengers is one of the ways that Satan will fight us. What the scripture tells us is that Paul and Silas are arrested, they're beaten, they're thrown into jail, and they are shackled to the wall. Now, Satan's idea in this is that he can deter followers of Christ from sharing the gospel or put them in a place where their voice can't be heard. And he still does this today. You and I are very blessed. I don't think anybody in here has ever been arrested for sharing the gospel. If you have, you need to come preach instead of me. But there are places in the world where our brothers and sisters can go to jail or be killed for doing what we are doing at this moment. That together in the name of Christ, to read a Bible, to teach, and to pray is outlawed. As a matter of fact, I've got a map coming up here on the, uh, on the screens. Every country that you see that is colored up there, it is illegal in some form or fashion to practice the faith that you and I practice freely. As those, um, as those uh, colors get darker, more of the darker red, those are places where it could cost you your life. Many of the places in dark orange, it is illegal to have a Bible. People literally strack backpacks of Bibles on their back and smuggle them into these countries like people smuggling drugs across our southern border so that the gospel can be heard in these countries. Satan is at work today attacking the messengers of God to keep the message of the gospel from getting out. Now I have this question, how powerful is the message of Jesus Christ that Satan would kill anybody who would dare utter it to anybody else? The power that we have to share the gospel is a life-changing, eternity-changing kind of power. And I want us to know that when we see things like this, when we see attempts at um, keeping us from sharing the gospel, whether it's legally, whether it's being attacked, whether it's people bullying us or peer pressure, that this is Satan opposing God's work. When I was a youth director here uh, several years ago, we, uh, we did something every year. We, we took the boys and the girls and we split them up for a Friday night and we called it Men of Faith and Women of Grace. And all the girls went over to some house and they had a sleepover and they did makeup and things. And then in the middle of the night, there would be like this, this moment of teaching that just focuses on what does it mean to be a woman of grace? How, how does following Christ particularly go, um, or how does following Christ particularly apply to being female? And then the boys, we would go camping and we'd do mainly things like, we like we eat things and knock down trees and stuff like that, and, and we would go do this. And, and one year we were camping out at my place, and we did this this I think I called it a lesson walk. We just went walking through the woods, and we had all of these different activities the kids had to do that were like team building activities that could then be translated into some sort of a uh, some sort of a biblical lesson. 
And so you, you guys are going to think I'm bad and be glad I don't have your kids in youth anymore. We had these po- boys, and I wanted to make the point that you had to walk by faith and not by sight. You guys know that verse, right? And so we had these boys in the middle of the woods out at our farm, blindfolded, following my voice through the woods. It was hilarious and probably a little bit wrong. And so they were following, they were all holding on to each other. I was like, follow me. And they were trying to, to follow my voice. And I was making the point, like, you have to listen for God's directions and follow him where he calls you without really knowing where you're going. And when we got to a place where I told him, I said, I want you, I want you to wrestle with Satan. I want you to learn to fight him. And we're going to symbolize that by having a tug of war. You guys versus the old guys. And there was like me and two or three other men there. And there were like nine or ten teenage boys. And if you know anything about teenage boys, they love proving they're more manly than older men. But they were still blindfolded. So we lined them all up with those blindfolds on and we gave them the rope and they're all getting ready to go. And I turned around and the men that were with me had the other end of that rope and I said, no, shh. And I walked over and I took that rope and I tied it to a tree. (laughs) You know, one that had a little bit of bend in it but they couldn't pull over. And I said, on your mark, get set, go. And those boys took off and that that tree bent over and then it whipped them back. And for a solid 30 seconds, they're struggling against this tree, pulling it back and forth. And I'm dying laughing. I said, okay, all right, all right, everybody stop. Pull your blindfolds off. And I wish you could have seen the faces of those boys when they took their blindfolds off and realized that they were fighting something they couldn't beat. Here's what I'm telling you is that we as Christians are often blind to what we're fighting. And what the scripture does is it takes our blindfold off and tells us we're not just fighting the circumstances that we think we're fighting. We're actually fighting Satan as he fights against us. This is from Ephesians 6. It says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. I want you to know this. Should you choose to follow the commands of Christ and share the gospel with your friends at work, I want you to know you are declaring war on Satan's kingdom. And he's not going to have it. And I would, I would encourage you to just expect in some way opposition because Satan is working in our world and politics and the cultural worlds and other religions for one purpose, which is to keep people from Jesus. And if you declare yourself into that fight and you tell Satan, I'm with him, I'm on his team and I'm fighting against you, he's coming after you as well. But I've got good news for you. It's the end you will be on the winning team. Nothing Satan can do can stop anything that God is doing. In Matthew 16, Jesus says this. He's talking to Peter, and he says this, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here's what the Bible tells us, is that the opposition can't win. It may come at a huge cost to us. We may lose a battle, but at the end of the day, God will win the war. The church will exist until Jesus comes back to get it, and the church will continue to share the gospel until Jesus comes back to get us. And because of that, Satan cannot win. So with that, we have to ask a question of when does evangelism work? When does evangelism work? Let's read one more scripture here. This is verses 25 through 34. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to him. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakened from sleep and seeing the prison door open, supposed the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. 
But Paul called out with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we are all here. And he called for a light and he ran in and he fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and all your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all those who were in the house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their straps. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced having believed in God with all of his household. We see Paul and crew go through this opposition. They've been arrested, beaten, imprisoned, and chained. But in every circumstance, they worshiped, their devotion was displayed, and they had passion. In this prison, in the midst, I told the youth earlier, if that had been me, I would have been chained to that wall crying. Like that, that would not have been something I would have been singing and praising God about. But the truth of the gospel and the truth of who Jesus was to Paul and Silas is even in that circumstance, the real them came out and they worshiped and they prayed. And because of that, they had an opportunity to share the gospel with others. It says that the people in the prison were listening to them. You know what they had to be thinking? These guys are nuts. We're in prison. This is a bad place to be. I'm hungry. I'm cold. I don't like the way it feels to be shackled to a wall. And yet Paul and, and Silas are over here are singing, how great is our God? I had to be thinking they were crazy. But their devotion to Christ and their ability to witness led others, or I'm sorry, their, their devotion to Christ gave them the ability to witness. Your next take home truth, point A, is that evangelism works when the passion is real. Evangelism works when the passion is real. Let me challenge you with this. Our true character comes out in the hardest moments. I don't care who you are. You can come to church and smile all you want to. God is so good. I welcome to church. But the second something doesn't go the way that you want to, who you really are on the inside is going to blossom out. And so my encouragement to us as we look at the scripture is to be like, like Paul and Silas, where being a follower is not a show that we put on. It's not something that we do on Sundays. That is truly who we are. That we truly worship and adore our God in every circumstance. And when the hard times come, guess what will come out of us? Is that same praise and worship that we have any other time. And because that passion was real, because that passion is real, we're going to see people whose eternity is changed. But listen, you cannot give to others what you do not already have. I had a friend in college, he got a job at a, a car dealership. He was doing pretty good, making pretty good money at this, being a car salesman. And, and he looked at his money and he decided, I've always wanted a Jeep. So he started looking for a Jeep. Now he worked at a Ford dealership in Jonesboro and he decided to drive to Conway to a Jeep dealership to drive a Jeep. And the next day he drives to work and he's all proud of this Jeep, you know, so excited about it. And his manager sees him pull in and rakes him over the coals. The message that his manager gave him was this, is we tell people we have the best vehicles at the best prices. That's what you tell people. And yet what you're living doesn't prove what you're saying. And how am I supposed to tell people that we have the best vehicles at the best prices when the very people who I employ here say, no, I found a better vehicle at a better price somewhere else. He said, you cannot sell something you will not buy yourself. Let me tell you, as Christians, this is true of us. We cannot sell something that we don't truly believe. We cannot sell Jesus who forgives sin if we don't live and believe that. 
We cannot tell people they should make Jesus their king if we hold back and say, Jesus is not my king. We have to be legitimate in who we are in every single moment. So Paul and Silas are singing and worshiping, and everybody notices them. And in the midst of that, there is an earthquake. Now, is that a coincidence? I think not. And here's the reason I think not. I've never been in a huge earthquake. I've been in a few like small ones. So it's like, why did the walls rattle? But every time I see an earthquake on the news, I see an earthquake that destroys and captures people. If you've watched the news with an earthquake, it's always about the people that are trapped in the rubble. They're digging out. They're trying to get people out of the rubble. People are trapped in the rubble. They can't get out. The building fell on top of them. So while a regular earthquake destroys and captures, this earthquake opened and freed. The Bible says that this one opened all the doors and the chains fell off of people. There's no amount of shaking you can do to make chains just fall off. But yet, here it happened. I feel like this is God telling the people in the prison that there is a power behind Paul and Silas. And yet, as God opens the doors and gives them freedom, they choose to stay. Once again, if it had been me, I'm in there crying for my mama, chained to the wall. That door opens, you ain't stopping me. Be out of there like an Alabama running back. You cannot catch me. But yet, Paul and Silas stay. Why did they stay? This is an opinion, but it's drawn from the scripture. I think they stayed for one man because they were waiting for the moment when the jailer came to the jail. Their enemy, the man who had likely beat them, who had chained them, who had imprisoned them, he comes to the jail. He's about to take his own life. And Paul goes, hey, uh, no need to do that. We're still here. We didn't leave. You have no reason to do that to yourselves. We are still here. I believe that Paul and Silas stayed in prison to serve another, but not only to serve another, but to serve an enemy. Does that remind you of anybody? Would stay in an uncomfortable, in an unfair position for the fact that he will bring others to eternal life? What you see in Paul and Silas is the heart of Jesus Christ as he, hang, as he hung on the cross. That he would undo or go through the hard circumstances for the good of people's eternity. And here, here Paul and Silas do the same thing. The jailer falls before them and asks, what must I do to be saved? Your next take home truth, point B, is evangelism works when serving is sacrificial. And when he hears, he becomes a follower of Christ. Listen, if we are going to spread the gospel, if we are going to spread the gospel, we must be willing to serve sacrificially. People don't want to hear your words until they've seen your actions. People don't want to know about Jesus if they don't see Jesus in your life. Now, Paul and Silas could have ran, but they chose to stay to serve an abuser who's someone who is now a brother. And this shows that God can work everywhere and in every circumstance. And let me encourage you, God will make you go through hard circumstances to accomplish his will. I don't know if you've ever heard that in a church, but I want you to know God is okay with you going through a hard circumstance if it's part of his plan. And I want to encourage you because that's not what you want to hear right before you leave here the payoff for that is eternal. Then when God takes you through something hard, that there is an eternal reward for it. I, I, don't, I don't know how heaven's going to work. I've got some ideas and I've got some opinions, but I like to think, I know the center of heaven is we're going to worship Jesus Christ. I like to think that we're going to get to talk to people. 
I've been reading this Bible all my life, being being taught this Bible all my life. And I, I want to talk to some of these guys. And I think we're gonna we're gonna get to talk to Paul. And let me tell you, Paul Paul is the most like blinged out person in heaven. He's gonna have crowns and jewels everywhere. Okay, he's gonna look like a 2002 rapper, just everything. And, and we're gonna have this opportunity to walk over to Paul and, and to talk to him. And, and you know you know what I think we could ask him. I think we could ask him is like, Paul, do you regret it? Paul, you were thrown in jail. You were beaten. You were shipwrecked. You were snake bitten. And eventually you were, had your head cut off. Paul, was it worth it? You know what I think Paul would answer to us? I think he'll say, hang on, I've got somebody you need to meet. Hey, come here. And we watch this man raise up from worshiping at the feet of Jesus and walk over to Paul. I think they're like frat brothers. What's up, man? Man, we've been, this is, yeah, we've been worshiping together for like 2,000 years. This is my best friend. Let me tell you how we met. You, you remember how we met? You remember that? Yeah. So, so he grabs me. He beats me with a stick. He chains me. You remember chaining me to the wall with those dirt, the chain, and it cut my hand, and it was all bad. You remember that? And he chained me to a wall. But we were singing and praising God, and that night there was an earthquake. And then because of that, he was going to kill himself. You know, I just soared. He was going to do this. And then all of a sudden, I called it, hey, we're still here. And he came and fell and he became a brother in Christ. And then Paul's going to look at us and say, do I regret it? No, because it was a small moment in time. But this man became my brother. He was an enemy, but now he's part of the family. And we have worshiped for all of eternity because I was willing for just a few days or just a few months or just a few years to go through the hard things to see him and others like him hear the gospel. I hope with all of my heart, Ramsey has listened to me. I hope the same could be said of us. That when we get to heaven, what we can say is, we endured some tough things so that we could bring people with us to heaven. That's what we're called to do. As this man fell at Paul and Silas's feet, the last thing, Rick, if you want to start coming up here, up here and point C on your take-home truths, is he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Point C is evangelism works when Jesus is glorified. There are men and women throughout history who have given their lives for one message and one message alone. Is that salvation comes only through Jesus Christ. That he is the only way to come to God the Father. And that any other thing that we do is as filthy rags. We have no righteousness. This is the gospel we live by and this is the gospel we share. So this morning as we leave and we're about to walk into the frigid, cold temperatures outside, I think we should take one last moment to assess whether we've tried to come to God any way except through Jesus. And if we can find in our hearts that Jesus is the one who set us free, we should be able to worship. Let's stand and worship. Thank you for joining us this week at Ramsey Heights. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. And if you did, feel free to share it with others. If we can help you begin to follow Jesus or grow in your relationship with Him, join us on Sundays or connect with us on social media or our website, RamseyHeightsFamily.online.